So, Freddie, um, what do you like about school? Uh, I when there's special days, like Halloween when you have a heart marching. When we go walk around the school wearing costumes or Christmas, a Christmas so remember that. What has COVID been like? I it it feels like it's it's it feels like it's never going to disappear. And I wish there's a ball can that can that can like all COVID and then it pop. Dr. Ethel Tungohan, an associate professor of politics at York University. Welcome to Academic Aunties. It's a new year, but it kind of feels like we're back in 2020. Pandemic parenting never ends. I am numb and exhausted. Where I am right now in Ontario, Canada, kids were staying at home for the first two weeks of January. With Omicron sweeping across our communities, The government said that a delay, which they initially told us would be two weeks at minimum, will allow schools to reopen more safely. In response to this decision, a group of 500 doctors sent a letter calling for the government to open schools for mental health reasons. Then other doctors wrote a response saying that they disagreed with this letter. Others piped in, including healthcare professionals like nurses and doctors, researchers and other scientists, and teachers and parents who said that actually, Omicron is spreading widely, and contrary to claims that it is a milder form of COVID, our healthcare systems are increasingly overwhelmed. And this time around, children under five who cannot get vaccinated are being hospitalized. The government of Ontario has now said that schools will reopen. And yet, we're not tracking COVID spread in schools. We can't access PCR tests without paying over $100. And teachers themselves are saying that they have yet to receive these tests and masks that the government has said that they're supposed to have received. And what about kids who haven't been vaccinated? What about kids in daycare who don't seem to factor in? I have a kid who is in daycare right now and I'm extremely worried about her safety. Our desire for schools to open isn't an absolute. I want schools to open provided that they are safer. It feels like there are no good choices. Send our kids back, but we heighten the risks that they and other people in our communities who are immunocompromised can get COVID leave kids at home, and work becomes impossible. This is even worse for those who are graduate students, who are on the job market, and who are pre-tenure. Let's face it, academia doesn't really make allowances for productivity gaps because of the pandemic. So for this month, Academic Antis will be focusing on pandemic parenting. We will be talking about the compromises we've had to make, the hard decisions we've had to take, And also, more importantly, we will remind you that we are enough and that blaming ourselves for not being able to be as productive means that we let structures off the hook. Women in the Academy have become the Academy's social safety net. Had it not been for the labor that women put in, academic systems would crumble. Consider, for example, studies showing that during the pandemic, women submitted more peer reviews and submitted fewer articles for publication, yet men did the opposite. They submitted more articles and wrote fewer peer reviews. I don't have the solution to any of this, 
except to remind all of us that it's not us, it's the Academy. This week, we're talking to the brilliant Dr. Sheila Kola from York University. And next week, we have the always amazing Dr. Yolan Buka from Queen's University. Auntie Sheila and Auntie Yolan drop a lot of truth bombs, which was incredibly cathartic for me to listen to. So here's part one of our pandemic parenting series. Enjoy! Uh, with us today is the fantastic Dr. Sheila Kola, who is actually my colleague at York University. And we haven't had a chance to meet in person, but I follow you on Twitter. And I know that we've had uh, a few exchanges on Facebook. Uh, so, Auntie Sheila, would you like to introduce yourself and tell our listeners where you're from and what you do? Sure. So thanks for having me. Um, I'm an associate professor, newly tenured now at York University in the Faculty of Environmental and Urban Change. Um, interestingly enough, I didn't move too much out of Toronto. So I was born in Toronto um, and went to University of Toronto for my undergrad. And then I did my PhD at York and then I did my postdoc at University of Toronto. And now I'm faculty at York. So <laughs> unlike many um, in academia who've had to travel a lot, I've actually been able to stay really close, which has been amazing for building my you know, research network, my community, um, and staying close to family, which I think is very um, important during these times as well, as I'm sure we'll be talking about. For sure. And uh, just so our listeners know, uh, uh, Auntie Sheila is our first auntie uh, from STEM. A lot of other, other aunties are in the social sciences and humanities. So Auntie Sheila, can you speak a little bit about the work that you do, what research you do? Yeah, for sure. Uh, so I started doing research actually in my undergrad, and I was... Um, serving bumblebees, um, helping out some grad students as an undergrad researcher. And I noticed that um, a species had gone missing that was supposed to be there based on like um, PhD theses from the 70s. So going around Southern Ontario, looking for bees and just noticing that actually we don't have the species we're supposed to have. So I ended up um, doing my PhD, trying to figure out um, which species are in decline. And it was really interesting because at the time I was one of the only, if not the only person in Canada looking at wild bee declines. Wow. That was like in the early 2000s, I guess, mid 2000s. And um, it, all of a sudden, like in the past 15 years, in the last 10 years, um, it became a topic that so many people started caring about, like pollinator declines. It became something that's like in the newspapers every spring and um, like there's tons of papers being published on the topic. So it was kind of um, lucky that I happened to do this undergrad project and make this observation. Um, so then I went into my PhD at York with Lawrence Packer in biology. And the idea was to try to um, assess which bumblebee species were at risk of extinction and try to figure out why, and then try to figure out how we can reverse uh, those trends. Uh, so that was my PhD work. And then I've since done a bunch of work working with NGOs and governments, and um, not only working on trying to figure out how some why some bumblebees are at risk of extinction, uh, but also how the social dimension plays into all of this. So how much power different stakeholders have in determining how policy is shaped and implemented and that kind of thing. So I've had to become more interdisciplinary as I've gone onto my career, whereas I first started just 
you know, walking in fields, counting bees, identifying them to species. Um, but now I realize that actually humans have a whole bunch of say into how the science is interpreted. And I think that's something that we're also seeing a lot with climate change and now with the pandemic as well. So it's all very applicable <laughs> to all sorts of uh, scenarios. Absolutely. And I think it's super fascinating, the work that you're doing. So we are entering year three of the pandemic. <laughs> you have all of this like amazing research projects. You are, you know, uh, very prolific when it comes to research, but you're also p a parent of, I think you said two kids. How old are your kids mm -hmm. again? Yeah. So I have a five-year-old and an eight-year-old. Um, they just turned those ages. And yeah, it's been a lot. I'm tired. <laughs> That's how yeah. I would sum it up. I'm exhausted all the time. Um, and I actually feel very fortunate because my kids are actually a pretty good age. They play well together. And now the older one can like read and do some of his virtual schooling on his own without me sitting right next to him. But I mean, the past, when it first hit, uh, you know, March, 2020, it was not like that. It was like, it was way worse for all of us, I'm sure. Um, we've sort of, I guess, started to adapt to it a little bit. But yeah, it's taken a toll in my research, in my life, um, even though I have so many privileges and I'm so thankful for so many things that I have access to to make it a little bit easier. It's still really hard. And what's what has that been like? Because you're also um, you're also having to pursue research, and you also said that you know you are recently tenured, as am I, right? So um, <laughs> it's 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 so brutal that we're talking about different stages of the pandemic. So now it's 2022. Um, in 2020, <laughs> we didn't have tenure yet, or I didn't have tenure yet, and so the mm -hmm. pressures were higher in order mm -hmm. to meet kind of research demands. So what was it like at the earlier stage of the pandemic when you're still tenure track when you're still kind of having to meet these expectations as opposed to now? And what are some of the things that you've had to do to kind of recalibrate expectations and make life more manageable? I've always taken a different approach, which is not usual in my field at all. Um, entomology in particular is a very white male dominated field. <laughs> so the idea of, you know, not focusing on getting publications out the door all the time, um, but actually like supporting people in their lives where they are is, I would think, I think is quite unusual um, from what I've seen. I recently got an award. I should show this to you. Um, it's just so funny. I got this Entomological Society Award for yeah, um, research. And it's just like this giant like face of this like white man. And I obviously have not <laughs> put it on my wall yet. <laughs> I feel so conflicted about it. <laughs> <laughs> it's just like such a symbol of, you know, what this field is designed to support versus what the reality of our world is right now. <laughs> They're so misaligned. Um, so, yeah. Can you talk a little bit about that? Like, are there conversations being had about, um, say, even the parenting expectations that make that make uh, some of the standards a little bit unreasonable? Yeah, Um I don't know if science is really set up to really think about supporting their scientists. Um, hmm. The kinds of solutions that, you know, science and like tri-council institutions, what they've come up with for the pandemic has been, you know, extending the tenure clock, which to me is such a strange solution. It's like, let's give them one more year of precarious employment and that should help. Uh, because <laughs> what's going on here, this pandemic, is going to have impacts on citation rates, on publications for years to come. It's not like 
if we lose two years of research, we just needed two years to catch up. That will never be the case, right? Like this will Mm -hmm. have long lasting impacts. Um, Most of my students lost their first field season, um, you know, doing bee work last summer. Um, A couple of them were able to do a field season, but it it was, you know, more expensive because we couldn't have, you know, assistants driving the same cars or staying in the same rooms Mm, as people. mm, Like mm. it was just like, there's all of these things that come into play when you're trying to navigate this that will have really long-term, long-reaching impacts. And I don't even know when it comes to like publishing, now we're going to have people with like gaps in their multi-year studies or times they couldn't get into the lab. And like, how are reviewers going to treat that? They're going to reject the papers, right? They're not going to say, oh, we should, you know, publish this as is because there was these external realities that happened and it's still good science and they did the best they can. That science isn't set up for that. They think scientists think that they're so objective um but the reality is it's like they make these decisions to make to exclude people who are struggling um in whatever socio-political context that we're living in at a given time it's just been it's been really fascinating and sad to see um the disproportionate impacts and even now with schools opening and the people who are so excited about that um how unexamined their privileges around that. I mean, I, trust me, I want schools open. I do not want my kids here, but just the idea that we can just send our kids um, and it not be safe places for students and some kids will get sick, some will die, but we're just going to have to like learn to live with it. It's just, it's, yeah, it's pretty sad. <laughs> so. Yeah. Well, let's, let's talk about that actually. Cause that's one thing that I think um, you've been tweeting about as well, which I totally appreciate. Like you mentioned that there's been, dis- there's been unequal impacts, uh, not just on people, but also on children and how, mm-hmm. um, you know, there's a lot of been, there's, there's, there's been a lot of kind of institutional indifference, if mm-hmm. not outright institutional failure. Like, what mm-hmm. do you think are some of the failures, I mean, what are some of the ways in which we parents have to make these hard decisions? Mm -hmm. So one paper that I have started um, assigning to all my classes is a paper that's called uh, Scientists Take a Side. Um, And it goes through some examples of where you think you're asking an objective question or writing about something in an objective way, but you're actually like taking a side. So even just not commenting on a political decision gives fodder to the status quo for what they want to do. And I think we've seen that like this week with the Mm. different doctors saying how important schools are for mental illness, Mm. politicians just like taking that being like, nope, we have to open our schools. The doctors are saying that it's important for the mental health of our children you know, and leaving out the fact that, you know, the mental health of children who have now chronically disabled parents, you know, is not that great. Uh, The fact that even when schools are open in Toronto, it was the racialized and poor communities that kept their kids home because they were the ones that were most impacted in New York and Chicago right now during this Omicron wave. It's exactly the same. It's the wealthy and white people who are sending their kids to school in these unsafe situations because they have access to better masks. They have access to private testing. Um, You know, they are in private schools in some cases, so their classes are a lot smaller and they have HEPA filters in every classroom and all of these things. 
But it's just the way you can see how the doctors themselves are not examining uh, their privilege and how they're communicating these scientific concepts and how it just feeds the status quo, you know, and it's totally um, neglecting the fact that there are really disproportionate impacts here. Um, So using my training of, you know, being a scientist and recognizing the failures of science to be able to recognize these uh, different intersections and and equity considerations. Um, It's, I've been able to, you know, speak at school board meetings uh, to email trustees and be like, here's the science. This is where we don't know something. This is where the precautionary principle comes into play. This is who's going to be impacted if you don't make this decision. So I've, you know, again, my research is all suffering here, but it's all very related. (laughs) My training in, you know, in conservation science and and just being able to acknowledge the limitations has been really applicable for me to be able to help in my neighborhood and my schools um, and even at the school board level at this point. That's so important. And I want you to send me an email after this with the article so I can link that to my show notes because you're absolutely correct, right? When you've got uh, so-called health experts delivering uh, press conferences, uh, making it seem as though, uh, you know, it's definitive that, you know, mental health is more important. It's definitive that uh, these are the tactics we need to follow in order to guarantee, um, you know, a safer return to schools. And you're like, well, that's not actually what you're saying. Um, But because they speak from that position of authority, um, some people think, okay, well, then it's safe. But you're like, whoa, 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 it's it's actually not. Um, Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And we like, it's so much, like, I work on bee conservation and there's, you know, we're all considered scientists, these people that work in this field, but some of us get a lot of money from pesticide companies. So how does that influence, Mm. you know, which research questions we ask and which ones we ignore? And then how does Mm -hmm. that um, influence how we talk about a certain subject matter? It's like, it permeates everything, our worldview, our stances, our privileges, it permeates everything we do about our work. And I can see it now with like all these doctors signing onto these letters and, you can go in and read the references that they're citing. A lot of times there's like huge holes and gaps and they're really doing science by press release, as you said, or press conference, <laughs> making these statements and, you know, um, really counting on the fact that people are not going to scratch the surface and dig into it a little bit more. So, yeah, it's it's been rough. But I think if anything, um, more people now see how science is not enough. Like it can only, the vaccine, amazing. It works. People should get vaccinated. That was science that did that. That's amazing. But it only takes you so far if you don't consider the equity component as well. You know, that the vaccines are only in these wealthy countries and then other countries have these outbreaks and then new variants are um, evolving and then that impacts all the other countries and they just need more vaccines. And like, we could go on forever with like this, right? Like the science has its limitations and I think we need to be more uh, cognizant about that um, and open to asking questions. Um, that interrogate science's ability to solve problems. Yeah, I mean, I guess one question I have that is also something I'm kind of grappling with as well is, do you ever worry about falling behind 
right? Like much as we're like, look, we're going to create new standards. We're going to work with people who share our values. At the same time, there is that ever-present worry that, you know, we're just kind of lagging, especially Mm -hmm. during the pandemic. Yeah, I think I've already fallen behind. I don't think I'll ever catch up, to be honest. (laughs) Um, But I do have amazing grad students and they're, you know, I'm probably the limiting factor in some of their research getting it. Um, But yeah, I just like, I I don't have, um, what is it called? The imposter syndrome. I just know that the system is not built to you know, have women, women of color, black indigenous researchers, people with young children who have partners that, you know, actually work, (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, don't, you know, have all of the things paid for. It's, it's not currently built for those people to thrive. So I'm not going to kill myself trying to, I'm just going to do what I can. Um, When the kids were here doing virtual school, I mean, they're supposed to be going back to school on Monday. We'll see if that happens. But Like if I got three hours a day of work in, that would be like an amazing good day. Mm. (laughs) (laughs) But really what it looks like is I have no time to do my own writing because that takes like a a certain type of mental energy that I just haven't had. Um, I can answer emails on my phone while I'm making lunch and stuff like that. You know, there's a lot of multitasking. So um, that stuff gets done. I can listen in on committee meetings. maybe not participating to my best um, ability, but yeah, like everything just has been scaled down and I do what I can, but I'm not going to beat myself up about not doing the best in all of the different realms. Absolutely. And I think that's an important kind of reminder too, right? Like we're not, we're not superheroes and we're just doing the best we can. And I guess my concern is, you know, I mean, we speak from the super privileged position of having tenure already. Um, but what would you say to colleagues who are grad students or gosh, who are on the job market or who are pre-tenure in STEM, who are having to kind of face these expectations? Um, and even as they kind of can write, you know, on the reports, look, you know, I, 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 I have two children, so I've had to take parental leave, but also the pandemic has compounded that. Um, and you yourself said that, you know, this isn't really something that a lot of people recognize as well. And so they would get pushed back. What advice would you give to those folks? And is there anything that we can do as meet more senior people to, to make things more humane? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah. In terms of us being more senior people, if we're doing peer reviewing, if we're doing grant reviewing, if we're on hiring committees, um, really just voicing these concerns and acknowledging, you know, the privilege that, you know, some people, I mean, I've, I've had people, my colleagues who, you know, took paternity leave and found it like some of the best time to do their writing. Right. Like, oh, shut up. I hate, like, you know what? Shut up. No, no, right? no. Um, so there's all of these like different places where we do have some things built in, but maybe they don't work the way that they're supposed to work. Um, so constantly interrogating how we're evaluating people, um, mm. you know, I, I don't know how much I can say, but when I've been comparing international and and domestic applicants and stuff, like looking at access to grants in some countries that, you know, have had like a lot of upheaval, like they don't stand a chance against Mm. applicants from the U.S. and the U.K., right? Like, and just... Um, just constantly just trying to think about why things look the way they do. And if there's any sort of way that we can move that dial a little bit and, and open it up 
to play to people who might not look on paper as, you know, the top. <laughs> I'm constantly trying to do that. Um, and then in my own lab, like I said, I am, I, I don't know if I've done it on purpose, but I, I do attract students who, you know, are maybe not super wealthy, not all white. Um, I don't, mm -hmm. I have very few white male students, <laughs> if any, <laughs> um, <laughs> um, and they know that they can come to me with sort of some like mental health issues or what have you. And I don't, you know, require people to be at their lab bench from nine to five. I know there are some scientists that do that. I give my students a lot of leeway um, in terms of how they use their time and when they do their work. Um, so there's that. Um, in terms of advising students, I mean, this is something that we've, you know, never lived through before, right? <laughs> so mm -hmm. it's really mm -hmm. hard to know how it's all going to pan out. Um, I think being honest is usually a good thing. Um, when you're applying for things and there are gaps or, you know, or if something is not at the completed position that you would want it to be like a paper or something like maybe being honest about why that is, I think it might backfire in some cases because there are people who just like aren't going to um, value the humanity part and just want you to be like a productive person. Um, but then maybe you don't want to work for those people. I don't know. <laughs> maybe that's like a way to select those people out. <laughs> Um, so yeah. <laughs> One thing I kind of am wondering about too is I have been in those rooms where I'm asking these questions, but then there's pushback, right? Like then you've got folks being like, really? And so how do you deal with the people asking the reallys? Do you kind of try to see if there are other sympathetic colleagues in the committee and you can amplify, speak together and amplify? Do you like, what are some of the things that we can do? Yeah. Um, Sometimes it's just not worth the energy, right? So okay. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I've been told that um, I was on a committee that I ended up leaving. It was actually a government committee for the province. Mm. And like, there's only so much fighting you can do sometimes, you know? Um, so just knowing that boundary, I think, is actually really important. Um, in some cases, in committee work where you're voicing some opinions and you see maybe there are some that maybe are not as vocal as you but are agreeing with you, maybe having private conversations about what next steps could be. Um, I've always had um, pretty good experiences with that. Um, but yeah, it's really tricky and there's all these power dynamics that go into it. What are the consequences? I personally don't join equity committees in the institution for that reason, because it's just mm. such hard work and you're often put into really awkward positions. <laughs> um, I have been a rep for hiring committees now, but um, in terms of like fighting for equity, I tend to do that more at the community level in my neighborhood and in Toronto, but not so much in my place of work because I've seen how fragility can backfire and really impact your ability to work with people. <laughs> we so need to have <laughs> we need to have an off the record convo about that because I am feeling everything <laughs> that you're saying. One of the things he said was you co you concentrate on your community and you concentrate on activism. And one thing that you had written actually, uh, Auntie Sheila, is that it's sometimes hard to be both an activist and an academic. Why mm. do you say that? Um, I guess for kind of more practical reasons I've gotten rejected for grant applications for people like with the comments that I'm more of an activist than a scientist now these days um whoa what does that mean <laughs> what 
I don't know if, I mean, all of this stuff is done under the shield of anonymity, right? So who knows what people mean? Like, how, like, was it because of the questions you were asking or is it because they looked at your CV and they kind of were questioning some of the work there? Like, where were these comments coming from? I think in that case, it was about my ability to be objective, which was being put under question. And um, it's kind of a weird thing because if you recognize that everything is political, then you recognize that you can't be objective. But for some reason in science, like being objective is like the goal. Mm, Absolutely. But I think it's actually impossible because our worldviews and our positionality influences everything about how we do our work, who we work with, what we're able to work on. So it's it's a constant tension that I've had to deal with in academic societies, um, my grants, um, all sorts of things. And it's constantly coming up, but... I mean, I'm not going to stop. <laughs> so if I end no, up, yeah, no. if my funding decreases yeah. because of my activism work, then so be it. But um, I can't just like sit by and pretend that scientists should not take a side on certain subjects or any subject and that the other intersections of my you know, identity aren't at play here because they definitely are. Yeah. So I guess one of my final questions to you is um, a lot of our listeners um, are women of color. They're parents, too. They're trying to they're trying to cope. They're trying to survive. Um, What's advice that you're giving our listeners, especially those who um, are just feeling, you know what, year three, we just don't know. We just don't know how to keep going. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. any hacks? Well, maybe not hacks, but maybe <laughs> can we hack our way through the pandemic? But any any thoughts you want to share? Yeah, um, I guess just giving yourself grace and understanding that this is not what this job is supposed to look like <laughs> right now. Um, and it was never really built to support us in a way that would help us thrive. And now it's just, you know, those inequities are just being completely compounded with all of this stuff going on. Um, so just giving your grace that giving yourself grace that um, and understanding that it's impossible. Everything that we're being asked to do is actually impossible to do. <laughs> and then finding those people who can support you, whether it's through a group chat where you just need to vent, whether it's your dean, your associate dean, where you can, you know, um, say, you know, I have this going on in my life right now. I can't do any more service or I can't do service for like the next six weeks. Um or I need to do less service, or I need help, you know, with my teaching. For me, when we first switched to online, I was teaching a really large undergrad class. So I asked my dean if I could have some TA help just to like set up the exam online and stuff. Cause I'd never done that. It would have been such a learning curve. And she was like, yeah, sure. Like she knew, you know, how much time that would have taken and how stressful that was. So just like, you know, asking for help sometimes. <laughs> You never know. It might actually work out for you. Um, And just building that community of people who you know um, you can go to uh, with all of your fears and just for a second opinion about things. Like I have so many group chats that I use for different ways. Um, I actually did this, um, the faculty, what is it called? Um, National Center for Faculty Diversity and Development. Yes. Yeah. yeah, I did that yeah. boot camp over the summertime and there were a few things that really stuck with me. And one of them was when you're trying to find like a mentor, just acknowledge that one person cannot be your everything. 
Mm. So if there's a person that can help you like review a, a grant or a person who can help you bounce ideas off of, or a person that you can go to about like your life struggles and trying to like do your research, like you need to identify who those people are and then just go to those people and not just assume that like, you know, one person has it all together because none of us have it all together. <laughs> I really like that, that um, exercise that we did. And the other one was the, um, writing the chapters of our career um, section. Mm. I don't know if you did that one, but basically the take home message for me was like, if you don't define how you want this part of your life to look like, someone else will write that chapter for you. You'll be eaten up by service. You'll be eaten up by admin positions or whatever. So be very thoughtful about the kinds of research projects that, you know, help get you out of bed um that you do feel like you want to do even though everything else is awful um and really try to focus on those even if it ends up being 15 minutes a day because that's all you have time for uh but really just you know keeping that as sort of a strategic move you know giving yourself that kind of um i don't know if it's like nutritious <laughs> you know what I mean yeah. I'm just trying, like, trying to like the things that like keep you going in terms of your work and your research even if it's just a little bit just keep that focus going on the projects that that really interest you and that you think are important for sure I mean I love all of the advice that you've given I mean I think you know relying on community is so important like I think um, a lot of us feel that we've got to do it all and you know um, seeking diverse mentors diverse communities who can kind of review a grant or you know even like do a guest lecture I've done that as well just to kind of ease off the workload asking for what you need because who knows maybe maybe you'll be given what you need right um, and finally kind of being a little bit more intentional about like what what you want to do right like doing the work that actually makes the most sense to you so a lot of this is intentional about it someone else will decide what that looks like for you whether it's like a student or you know a collaborator or whatever so just really being like firm um, and trying to do what you want to do as much as you can work it into your day a hundred percent this is all <laughs> so useful um auntie sheila thank you so much um a lot of our listeners are on social media so uh do you want to kind of share uh, your social media handle in case uh folks uh, want to get in touch with you or follow you yeah um so really i think twitter is my main thing everything else is kind of like pictures of kids which is not interesting to the random person <laughs> uh, so on twitter my handle is save wild bees um But on Facebook, I also, um, one of my projects called Finding Flowers has a Facebook page. So um, if you wanted to follow our research, that's our project in collaboration with some of our indigenous uh, partners looking at the relationships of bees and plants and medicine gardens and having really hard conversations about, you know, Canada and extraction and environment and all of these things. So um, yeah, so Finding Flowers, we're on Facebook and YouTube as well. Thank you so much. This was an incredibly illuminating conversation. (laughs) Thank you. After talking with Auntie Sheila, it is no wonder that so many of us are feeling like we're at the breaking point. But in a way, it's empowering to know that you're not alone. And for me, I'm thinking about how those in the social sciences and humanities can work hand-in-hand with those in STEM to disrupt these systems and structures that are hurting so many. That's Academic Aunties. Help us out and spread the word. Visit academicaunties.com to learn more about how you can support the podcast. 
Today's episode of Academic Antis was hosted by me, Dr. Ethel Tungohan. Our producers are Wayne Chu and Dr. Anisha Nath. Tune in next week when we bring you more Academic Antis. Until then, take care, be kind to yourself, and don't be an asshole.